Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Michael Pollan, author and journalist, and host Michael Lerner, as they discuss the trip treatment, new research on the healing properties of psychedelics. Thank you all for coming to Commonweal this afternoon. Perhaps I should introduce myself. Uh, my name is Eric Karpolis. I'm a member of the board of Commonweal here, so that you know where I'm coming from. We have over 200 podcasts of events that have happened here at the New School that are available on the website. And the list of people who have spoken in conversation with uh, Steve Heilig and Michael Lerner and a variety of people, including myself, is really a, a wonderful list. It's a wonderful resource, uh, and we encourage you to make use of it. So, without much, much more ado, I'd just like to introduce um, Michael Lerner, is the founder of Commonweal. He and several other people came together in the 70s with the idea of making this space uh, a center for, I think the basic principle was healing and justice. And we operate these days uh, three, under three kind of categories different programs under the umbrella of health and healing, of uh, environment and justice, and education and the arts. Those are the three kind of main categories that uh, the programs of Commonweal fall under. Today we're here at the New School, uh, which is a series of talks in which we attempt to bring a broader community into a kind of dialogue with some of the amazing people who do work here at Commonweal. Uh, and Michael Lerner, this is the Michael and Michael show, uh, Michael Lerner uh, had the vision about what Commonweal could be in 1975 or 76, I believe. And so we are about to enter the fifth decade of programming at Commonweal. One of those programs, the Cancer Help Program, is about to enter its fourth decade. So we have some very significant anniversaries coming up. And it's a remarkable tribute to the work that's done here that in the 70s and 80s when this work began, it was all considered lunatic fringe stuff. And now so much of the work that has been, the foundation for this work that has been laid here has penetrated into the mainstream. We continue to do our work and other people continue to do their work. But uh, it's, it's something to celebrate. Michael Pollan is here today. Uh, he is the author of many books. He probably doesn't need that much introduction himself because many of you are here because you know of him. I, Michael Pollan and Michael Lerner uh, both are from New York and I'm from New York. These are all transplants. Uh, when I had a garden back east in the 1980s and 90s, uh, I was a city boy who was learning about digging in the dirt. And I had very specific ideas about the kind of gardens that I wanted. Uh, and I studied different landscape designers, and I would visit gardens. And in 1991, I got a copy of a book called Second Nature, which was Michael Pollan's first book, in which he talked about the experience of being a gardener and learning all of a sudden to acknowledge 
the importance of plant life, to see the world from the point of view of a plant. And this idea has led him on an incredible journey through all sorts of issues and um, points of view that have made him almost, I, d I don't think he could plan this, but he's really become an advocate and the spokesperson for agriculture and for plant life and for the interface between nature and culture. Um, he had a wonderful thing where he talked about the fact that if you look at the world through the point of view of a plant or an animal, he says it's the cure for the disease of human self-importance. <laughs> he talks about consciousness as a tool that humans work with to integrate with the environment that we live in, and that animals and plants have their own interface, which is not consciousness, but is biochemistry. And this is, I think, this distinction between biochemistry and consciousness is the kind of opening that this discussion about psychedelic drugs, psilocybin, uh, comes out of. And so uh, I think that I remember reading an article Michael wrote in Harper's Magazine in the late 90s, I think, about poppies. I encourage you all, all of you, to try to find that magazine article because it's a remarkable document about where we are in relation to, to plants and the legal system and all sorts of issues. So I really want to welcome Michael and Michael, who are two great proponents of the cross-pollinization of the life of the mind and social activism. Thank you. By the way, if you want to read that piece he referred to, it was called Opium Made Easy. Uh, and I see there's some beautiful opium poppies in, in your neighborhood. Um, it's on my website, uh, so you can download it for, for free. MichaelPollan.com. Michael Pollan, welcome to the new school. Thank you, Michael. Great pleasure to be here. You are the author of seven books, um, and I just want to uh, describe them briefly, uh, starting with uh, your first book, I think, Second Nature, A Gardener's Education. The American Horticultural Society listed it as one of the 75 greatest books ever written about gardening. Uh, a Place of My Own was about designing your own one-room structure as a place to read and write and daydream in rural Connecticut. The Botany of Desire, which we're going to come back to, is about the re reciprocal relationship uh, between uh, plants and people and how plants evolved to satisfy our most basic yearnings. Uh, the Omnivore's Dilemma, A Natural History of Four Meals, is about uh, what are we going to have for dinner and how the answer may determine our survival as a species and the health of the environment that sustains uh, life on Earth. In defense of food, uh, 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 pointed out that we're not eating real food anymore. We're consuming edible food-like substances, no longer the products of nature but of food science. And what you describe as the American paradox, the more we worry about nutrition, the less healthy we seem to become. Food rules uh, propose that the wisdom of our grandparents 
uh, would guide us better than the recommendations of science, industry, or government about uh, how to eat. And your most recent book, Cooked, explored your own kitchen and the enduring power of fire, water, air, and earth to transform nature into food. So as a uh, well-established uh, food writer, uh, uh, gardening writer, uh, and really uh, someone who's become iconic is not too strong a word for your, your position in science writing in this area, you come out with, in the New Yorker, no less, uh, in the February 9th issue with an article called The Trip Treatment. Research into psychedelics shut down for decades is now yielding exciting results. And then the lead-in said psilocybin may be useful in treating anxiety, addiction and depression, and in studying the neurobiology of mystical experience. So my first question to you is, why, as an established food writer with a very, very wide audience, uh, would you take the very real risk of venturing into the still uh, radioactive field of uh, psychedelic uh, treatments for illness? Well, now that you put it that way, maybe it was maybe it was a little uh, a little reckless. <laughs> You know, there's, there's more continuity, um, I, I think, as Eric's introduction was suggesting um, in my work, uh, and, and that this piece, to me, is not such a radical departure. Um, in uh, Botany of Desire, there's a long chapter on one of, I mean, the book looks at four human desires that have shaped our relationship to plants, and one of them is the, the, the drive to alter consciousness, which is ancient and, in fact, shared by other species as well. And, uh, and so I explored cannabis there and started delving into these questions. And, uh, and then this long piece on opium and the drug war. Um, so I've, you know, I'm interested in nature in all its dimensions. And a very important part of the human relationship to the natural world is using nature to change ourselves in many ways, including the textures of consciousness. And um, uh, so the fact, to me, it's just this marvelous fact of nature that uh, a mushroom that goes, grows pretty commonly, even around here, is, uh, has that potential. Um, and indeed may have played a role in, in some people think, in the, in the birth of consciousness and, and in the birth of religions. And um, uh, it's the same wonder, I feel, about plants that have evolved certain colors and flavors to, to gratify our desires. Um, so we don't know in the case of psilocybin or other, other psychedelic plants, or fun, and obviously it's not a plant, it's a, it's a fungus, um, whether that is part of their co-evolutionary strategy or whether it is, is co-evolutionary that they produce this chemical or is it purely a matter of happenstance that they produce this chemical for reasons unknown to us. Actually, we still don't know. Um, but it's part of that relationship, and, and that's finally, all my work is about the, the human relationship to the natural world, how we fit in, um, and, and how reciprocal that relationship is, that we're constantly being changed as we change it. Um, so it's of a piece with that. Um, I wasn't looking for this story. The story sort of found me. I, um, uh, I was at a dinner party, um, uh, my wife and I, with some people we didn't know. And there was a 
very prominent member of uh, the Berkeley faculty who began telling stories about her experiences with LSD. And, and that was interesting. I hadn't heard that too much at dinner parties and, um, <laughs> recently. And, uh, and then it became clear that these experiences were not 30 years old, that they were a matter of weeks old. And, I, and then I really listened. And, and, I, and from hearing her talk about this, I realized there was something going on in the culture and that we were perhaps ready to revisit these remarkable molecules and to figure out what they were good for. And then I heard from another colleague um, about these trials, uh, that, that, that this experiment that had gone on at uh, Johns Hopkins in the early aughts that resulted in a paper in 2006 um, where a, a very prominent psychopharmacologist had experimented with, uh, whether to, did a trial to see whether he, the drug could be used to reliably induce a mystical experience in people. And, um, and what impact that had. And, uh, and it was a remarkable study. And this colleague had had some role in the design of it, and he'd sent me to, to read this. And it, it is a mind blow. It's, worth, it's a paper worth reading. 30% um, of the people who had this experience, and there were only 15 or 20, said that it was the, uh, one of the top five most meaningful experiences of their lives. And several of them had said it was the most meaningful experience of their lives. Um, uh, and, um, and there had been interesting impacts on their personalities, too. They had looked at that, too. You know, in adulthood, it's very seldom that personality changes. It's pretty much locked in by the time you're in your early 20s. And, um, but there's one category of personality that psychologists use, uh, and that is the, the, the trait of openness. And openness involves uh, your, your receptivity to new people, new experiences, to nature, and it, it's a good predictor of creativity. And that this changed in people in a, in a permanent way that increased their, their openness. And that was quite a remarkable finding, too. But the, the mystery of this um, is that I subsequently um, uh, met someone who's very involved in funding this research and getting it started, who lives in um, Sebastopol. And I went back and looked in my, I was searching for an email of his, because uh, we'd been going back and forth and I was interviewing him. And there was an email from this man who I thought I had just met from 2006, sending me these two papers, saying that this will be of keen interest to you. And of course, I didn't know it at the time, and I didn't even read them. Um, but there they were, sitting in my email, uh, the basis of this article and this interest. Um, so somebody knew it should happen. <laughs> so we have eight people with cancer showing up tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock clock for I think it's probably the 178th week-long cancer health program. Uh, and um, uh, actually one of them is uh, a friend of yours, somebody that you know well and sent you his regards. Um, but imagine for a moment that you were sitting with me on Tuesday night when we talk about uh, choices and healing or Wednesday night when we talk about death and dying. And imagine that uh, you had sat with me in the conversations I have with each of the participants at the beginning of the week and read their stories and seen these stories of intense anxiety and depression and uh, just agony over uh, lives that feel like they're being cut short or they're leaving loved ones and all those things and people on all kinds of medications uh, for these things. 
Um, and imagine you were sitting in the living room at Pacific House with me, speaking with these eight people, and that you really cared about them. Um, what would you say to them about what this new research indicates that you just thought they ought to know? Well, I guess I would tell them some stories. Um, you know, I, I interviewed um, probably a dozen cancer patients in the course of doing this piece, and these are people who had diagnoses, some of which were terminal, some of which were not, but there was, you know, there is the anxiety of death, and of course there's the, the, the closely related anxiety of reoccurrence, even when you're successfully treated. And, um, and that can be disabling also. And um, uh, so I talked to a, a range of people, and they were mostly in their 50s, 60s, um, some 70s, and, um, and they had all had remarkable experiences um, to different degrees. Um, but many of them had actually been a, and I should describe what these experiences are too. It's not, um, how many people have read this article? Okay, but there are people who haven't, so I'm not gonna, forgive me if I um, give you more detail than you need. Um, these are not uh, what we might call recreational psychedelic trips. Um, these are not people given a, a mushroom or a pill and they go off to the beach or the woods and have an experience by themselves. This is a guided psychedelic journey, which is a very different thing in many ways. Um, they are, these, these drugs are administered um, yeah. First, it's a synthetic form of psilocybin, so they can control the dose very carefully. And people are in a room, although it's made to look like a living room, and there are um, paintings on the walls and, and um, you know, Buddhas and mushrooms and all sorts of spiritual tchotchkes. And, um, uh, and they're, they're on a, a couch, and they're laying down, and uh, they're given this pill in a, in a little chalice. It's done with a certain amount of ceremony. And there are two guides, a man and a woman, who will be in attendance the entire time, who are very well trained, um, and have taken a course in how to handle people having negative experiences, which is not unusual. And, um, and they lie down, and after a half hour this begins, and they put on an eye mask, and they listen to um, this wonderful playlist of very carefully curated music that you could, you could imagine what's on it. Um, and, um, uh, and then they, and the reason for this is, first, it's very safe, um, a safe environment. Second, you, um, it's a very inward journey. Um, you're not, looking at the waves crash, you know, but you're, you're going inside, and that's a very important part of it. And the, the, the minders, the, the guides say very little unless you ask for help. And every now and then they might um, put a hand on your hand or shoulder and, um, and say something helpful if you see something really terrifying. And um, which often happens. And um, so it's not a, so that's the, the nature of the experience. It lasts about five or six hours. It's one of the reasons they use psilocybin and not LSD is that it's a shorter acting drug and it carries much less political baggage. I think it's, it was easier to get approval for it. Um, LSD, those, as one researcher said, those three letters carry so much cultural and political baggage, we didn't want to mess with it. And you could imagine some, you know, congressman standing up in, in outrage over the fact that some government money perhaps was finding its way to LSD experiments. Um, so uh, in, the, in the case of the cancer patients, 
Many of them had experiences that dealt very directly with their cancer or their death. People go on an inner journey and see their cancer and talk to it. I mean, they see, you know, the, the main character in the piece is a 53-year-old man named Patrick Metis, uh, who I never met. He's died since. Um, he had this experience. Um, but he had an encounter with his cancer. And, um, uh, and many of them have a, a kind of a rehearsal of their death where they see something that lies on the other side, described variously as a great plane of consciousness, uh, or this guy, Patrick, imagine going on this very sharp, almost razor-sharp pinnacle, and, and he looked over the other side, and what he saw was not terrifying, but he wasn't ready to go there. He didn't want to leave his wife, um, but it was a comforting vision. Um, another woman, to give you an example, uh, she, this is a woman who is a very prominent development director of an institution in New York who, I forget whether she had ovarian or breast cancer, but she, um, uh, she envisioned herself zipping through space as if in a video game, going all over, and, um, and then suddenly coming up against the wall, the concrete walls of a crematorium, and realizing she was dying. And, um, but she didn't have the experience of burning because she was dead. But paradoxicality is a, is, a, is a hallmark of the mystical experience. And then suddenly she was going down into the soil and coming up through the roots of the trees and into the forest, and she had become part of the forest, and it was okay. And I thought that was an interesting experience, uh, interesting story, because one of the things that concerned me in, in, in listening to these stories was that people were perhaps being fed a very comforting delusion. Uh, about a life after death. Um, but think about her story. I mean, that is what happens to us. <laughs> you know, that's perfectly accurate, you know, in a scientific sense. Um, uh, had she been cremated and spread on the soil somewhere. And, and, but she had a different point of view on it, and that was that her ego, the loss of this, this thing, this, this achievement of a, of, a, of a human ego, um, was not the end of her story, and that she and that she and she took great comfort in that. So these are the kinds of stories people have, and, and afterward they do. They also do some consolidation. They're working with therapists both before and after, and that's very important because many people who have a recreational psychedelic experience sometimes they integrate it into their lives in meaningful ways, and sometimes it's just a cool experiment, you know, experience. Um, and that's very important. And, and many of the people describe being changed by this and having uh, come to terms with their death. Uh, one woman said she had completely lost her anxiety about recurrence. Gone. I had put in the first draft, you know, it, it, it diminished her fear of, and she made me correct. She said, no, it's gone. I don't dwell on it anymore. I, li I live my life. Uh, and Patrick Metis, the, 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 uh, the hero of the story, um, after this, uh, had, he, he lost a lot of his anxiety, and his last 17 months were filled with many, many satisfactions. And uh, at some point, he gave up his chemo um, and, uh, because it was a really debilitating regime and just decided that he, it's not the way he wanted to live. It's not that he wanted to die, but that was not the way he wanted to live. And that distinction was very important to him and has been to other patients as well. Um, you know, it's, it's not for everybody. I mean, I, I can imagine myself, given a terminal diagnosis, that that loss of control and that um, 
would be very frightening. Um, so people are selected, or self-selected first, and then screened very carefully um, to, you know, th that they have the um, openness to this experience and the psychological strength, because it's not an easy experience. Um, there is this encounter with death, and, um, and there are these periods of, of transient anxiety. What, what's interesting, I think, about these protocols they've developed, which are very much based on years of experience, you know, with people having bad trips. Um, and there's one principle in this research has a foot in the 60s world of psychedelics and, and is still doing it, and he's, he's guided countless trips. So he has these, uh, what are called flight instructions that he gives the, the therapist. He's the, he's the main trainer, his name is Bill Richards. He's a wonderful psychologist from Baltimore. And, 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 and those flight instructions I found very interesting. Um, and basically, you know, what, he's, what, what they say is if someone has a scary experience, not to run away from it, um, to go toward it. And if you see a monster, step right up to it and say, what are you doing in my mind? Or what do you have to teach me? And, um, and don't back down. And if you do that, you will pass through that into another, another phase of the experience. And, um, and a lot of people said that this worked really well for them. Um, and that there is, uh, it's very frightening to watch your demons arise from the depths or to feel your ego completely disintegrating. But the, the trust and let go is a mantra that's also part of these flight instructions. And that, that release, it's the people who resist, I think, that have the hardest experiences and those who are willing to let go, which is not my strong suit. <laughs> so, in other words, it's not for everybody, and I wouldn't counsel anyone to do it, but I would tell stories. And when, when people hear stories about this, they pick out things that are relevant to them. And that's, the, I mean, that's why stories are better than lectures. This, this article is part of a book that you're working on. Well, this, this article um, is the inspiration for a book I want to write. Yeah. And uh, you said when we were chatting before, you're not sure whether it'll be focused exclusively on hallucinogens or on a broader yeah. set of categories. Well, you know, people can get to the same place through meditation. Yeah. Many people, and um, and in fact, some of the the, the most prominent um, researchers, the one in particular who did that 2006 paper and study, um, he got interested in this through meditation. Um, he had he had like most of us had had a very hard time meditating as a as a young person, and and someone had kind of he found the right teacher, and he had some um, extraordinary experiences um, practicing. Siddha yoga, uh, yoga. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And um, these experiences were so profound for him that they made him very uncomfortable with his science because he, he developed a, a kind of insight into a non-material dimension of consciousness that he couldn't talk to his scientific colleagues about. And, um, and he got a little bored with the science he was doing. And the kind of science he was doing is very conventional drug research. Uh, you know, this is a guy who'd written 350 NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse funded papers, studies, and things like uh, baboon self-administration of heroin, you know, where, you know, you, you give an animal in captivity heroin and you see how much they consume, you know, that kind of, we spend a lot of public money on this stuff. And, um, 
And he was actually entertaining thoughts of going off to India and, and going to an ashram. And um, when, strictly by coincidence, uh, a colleague of his, a former head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse named Bob Schuster, called him and said, you know, I just met this very interesting young man who, who wants to fund some research on, um, on mystical experiences. And uh, Roland was all ears and, and, and started, met with this guy and, and, and started going down this path. Um, and uh, so I think in many ways, he, he, if you asked him, he would say psychedelic drugs are a shortcut uh, or a, a crash course in reaching a, a point where your ego's chokehold on you is released and, and other things come to the fore. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know that it's a book about drugs or a book about a certain kind of experience and its, and its utility. I mean, I'm very interested in, you know, why, why should we crave altered states of consciousness? Um, why should this be a universal desire? What, what adaptive function does it perform for us? Um, obviously, the relief of pain is one, um, but there are others with these more profound and, and often life-altering perspectives. Um, I mean, I, I, I mentioned in um, Botany of Desire that one way to think about drugs and culture, because obviously this drug has had a profound, I mean, psychedelics in general as a class has had a profound effect on our culture. I mean, a lot of 60s culture flows from it. Uh, many kinds of art and, and kinds of music flow from it. It's, I don't know that you could actually pull the thread apart and, and say everything that is, is the result of the entrance of this molecule into our culture, but it's, it's profound. Um, so that maybe what these drugs are are kind of uh, um, mutagens, you know? I mean, they, they mutate, uh, if not genes, hopefully, um, memes um, and, and cultural units and, and, and allow for novelty to flourish in culture. Um, like most mutagens, many, many effects are negative or neutral or ridiculous and, and they don't survive, but some of them perhaps take hold and become part of the story of culture that we tell. And that, that there are definitely some of those. So, yeah, that, the book is something I'm just kind of sketching out now. Um, but, you know, there are two kinds of articles you write, I find, as a journalist. One are the ones where you finish it and you've put in six months or nine months or a year's work, as I often do on a long article, and you're like, I am so sick of that topic. I, am, I cannot wait to be done. And there are others where you feel, I've just scratched the surface. And this was one of those. I had just scratched the surface. This is a, uh, there's so many more, I mean, as it was, this is two thirds of what I wrote. I mean, it was a, I wrote 15,000 words. I was so excited by what I was learning. And, um, uh, and that, and this focused very narrowly on science, conventional white-coated science, but there's a lot of things going on in the periphery, uh, which you would not call scientific, but are also quite valuable. You're listening to a conversation with Michael Pollan and Michael Lerner. And there is a whole question, which I, I hint at, about the use of these, these drugs among the healthy, and uh, the, the so-called, this one source, pricelessly said, uh, the use of these drugs for the betterment of well people. Um, that's a powerful idea and a very controversial idea. It's not easy to fund research into the betterment of well people. Um, although, why not, right? Um, uh, so I didn't get into that. There were all sorts of topics that I think my, um, my editors were uncomfortable with. 
You know, you know very well, and uh, many here today know that um, this field of um, of uh, mind changing herbal substances uh, goes back to the beginning of human history, and that. Different cultures, as you've written, and the extraordinary piece in, on marijuana and the botany of desire, uh, have privileged different substances at different times and sometimes mm. reversed. So Islam doesn't like alcohol, and you know we don't like opium. You know? Right. And uh, uh, but uh, in the West, uh, uh, marijuana was a medicinal herb up until the drug wars and stuff like that. It was part of the Merck manual. I mean, it was like regularly used. And so there are these cultural flips. Uh, and, and sometimes quite dramatic. And, and quick. sometimes yeah. dramatic. And some people have suggested that, um, that uh, many civilizations find the unregulated use of these substances as a challenge to social control mechanisms. And so they tend to privilege one substance and wrap it around with all kinds of rules and regulations or rituals, rituals yeah. or whatever, and, then, uh, and right. then sanction the others. That's uh, right. So here we are in a situation, uh, I can't remember who said this, but I, I think it was, uh, you, you know this book uh, that I have here, uh, by uh, edited by uh, Charles Grob called Hallucinogens, a reader, which came out about 12 years ago. And, um, and uh, so one of the things that comes up a lot in the current context is, you know, the way it's being framed now by the researchers is this should only be done under controlled circumstances by carefully trained people. And the wide use of these things in society has all kinds of dangers, which mm -hmm. is true. But at the same time, it ignores the positive effects that many people in the broader culture have had with these substances, which has changed lives. And so there have been the casualties and there have been right. the positive. And the great creative achievements that, and the great that you can creative credit to this. I mean, yeah. You know, in my own knowledge, some of the very most able people I know in health, the environment, justice, and culture will tell you that marijuana or hallucinogens have been central to their creative work. Not just marginal, but central. So we have this situation in which, but on the other hand, if you look at the history of these substances, in original societies, they were sacramental substances that were wrapped in a cocoon yeah. of guidance. That's right. And then in our society, they become commodified packages of consciousness, which consumer are goods, yeah. consumer addictive, and so on. Well, so it's very tough to. Yeah. Let me say one final thing, and then I'd like to hear hear your response. So here we are with the boomers reaching this last phase of life. Most of them have saved little, if anything, for this period of time. They're facing death and dying and illness. And uh, 
they have reinvented every phase of life that they've been through. Mm -hmm. And so they're very likely to reinvent this phase. And so the question arises whether these hallucinogenic substances will be part of the way they reinvent the experience of dying, not only in medical research, but as a culture. Yeah. yeah. And I think that may well be true. I mean, I think it's no accident that we're having this conversation now. Right. The boomers' kids have left the home. Right. And one of the things that's taken their place are more drugs. Uh, I mean, I see this, you know. Um, they were taking drugs before they had their kids. And then, and right, then it became a problem. And many of the people you're describing have actually, you know, I've talked to them since this article came out, and people tell me the most amazing stories. And these are people I don't associate with um, use of hallucinogens and, um, and just what a role they played in their lives. And, and everybody stopped at a certain point. It was usually, well, not everybody, but... Um, <laughs> There, but there was a point where they had a bad experience or life just got in the way. I mean, it, you know, it's a big time commitment. Um, we're, we, we have very busy lives. Um, but I've been really struck by that because I wasn't aware of that. And these are people a little bit older than I am who, uh, for whom this experience was, was seminal. Mm -hmm. and, um, and one person uh, who, when I, I told I was working on this, somebody... I guess in his late 60s, early 70s, with a uh, prominent position in, in the university, got a wistful eye, a look in his eyes, and said, Ah, oh, yes, I've, I always told myself I would circle back. <laughs> so, yeah, I, mean, I think what you're describing, I mean, I don't, I don't want to make light of it, but um, is, is, is true. And there was, there, the boomers will reinvent death to the extent it can be reinvented. There was a wonderful piece in California Sunday Magazine by John Muellam uh, about, about IDEO or IDEO deciding to try. Miller, the head of Zen Hospice, who right. we've done a conversation yeah. with here. And there is an interest in, in, in recasting this experience. And I think it has a, a relevance. And, and, and I talk to people actually in the piece who, you know, there's an, a huge difference in the candor with which people will talk to you, whether they're doing the research and in these labs, which are at very prominent places like NYU and UCLA and uh, Johns Hopkins. And then people who've left those labs who speak a little bit more freely about their vision of the future. And um, one of their visions of the future is, and I heard this from several people, is to establish a psychedelic hospice, um, which is kind of a mind-blowing idea, and this would be a, a terrific setting for it, I think. Um, and this idea may not be as far away as we think. Um, and that, and this woman who, who, who talked about this, her name was Catherine McLean, and she was one of the researchers at Hopkins who did the personality paper that I was describing earlier. She feels, and she's someone who actually um, has a lot of experience. Uh, she had a younger sister who, who got cancer and died, and she walked her through that whole experience. And, and she's worked with a lot of people who are dying, and she felt that the caregivers would benefit from it as well as the patients, and in some cases more, because it's about letting go. Mm -hmm. And she's the one who described it as a death rehearsal. It's, it's, it's practicing letting go of your ego, practicing letting go of everything that matters to you. And, um, and she felt it could be enormously helpful. 
And there are some, there's talk about where could you establish such a hospice, and there are some uh, nations that might be hospitable to this idea that are actually talking to researchers about doing it. So it may not be quite as far away as we think. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of experienced guides and practitioners out there who are doing this right now. Mm. So it may take time for it to become institutionally established, right. but in fact, in terms of set and setting, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the people doing it now may provide a better set and setting than any institutional uh, psychedelic hospice could because any institutional psychedelic hospice will have to be surrounded by yeah. cautions which affect set and setting. That's right. And they're not going to give it to caregivers. They're going to give they're it only to patients. I mean, because drugs are for sick yeah. people. Yeah. I think one of the things to re remember, too, is um, one of the things that really struck me in this research is it's not simply a drug experience. Right. It's an experience occasioned by a drug right. that can be occasioned in other ways. And that was a very important distinction for people. The changes that go on are not strictly biochemical in this case. Yeah. And that the drugs... Uh, spark something um, and that some people have the experience and some don't. And it is a, they, they call it in the papers a mystical type experience. And the shrinks have a, you know, a, a, a way of judging that. You know, it has to have these six criteria and, and um, but it's, it's unlike other drugs. And, and that may be one of the things that will make it difficult to fit into the pharmacopoeia. There are several things like that that will, which is that, as you, as you, to bring up set and setting, is very, I'm really glad you brought it up because it's incredibly variable. Mm -hmm. And that people very often have the experience that their guides expect them to have. Right. Um, it's, they're drugs that are highly suggestible. They don't have their own agenda. Right. Um, and that, in fact, depending on the kind of therapist you're working with, you have a totally different experience. And people describe that, you know, that, well, when you do this with a Jungian, you, you have Jungian imagery. <laughs> and, um, and so on. And, um, and, there, and there's, there, one of the things I want to explore is, to what extent is the psychedelic experience constructed? I mean, to a large extent. Um, why is it so Eastern? Why is LSD so Eastern in our culture? Um, is that just an accident of the fact that some of the early practitioners were reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead? Or is there something inherent about it? Why, is there, why does it plug into Eastern mysticism and not Christian mysticism? You know, that may have to do as much with Timothy Leary's leanings than, than any inherent truth about the, the substance. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of very interesting questions around that idea of set and setting. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, the points that you make and what we've referred to, but I just want to come back to it, is that um, the, the apparent core role that these substances had on the origins of human religions. And... Um, that's an interesting contrast to the view which is often held that somehow to give yourself a mystical experience this way is to do it on the cheap, you know, that it's kind of cheating. Right. And in fact, Mircea Eliad, when he talked about shamanism, the great, you know, yeah. his point of view was that, that it was degraded shamanism that mm -hmm. included this, which uh, in the Dobbs book, uh, one of the... Um, 
in the Grob, Grob book, one of the Houston writers Smith addresses that. Addresses and says, no, he's got it wrong. Actually, it, it, it isn't degraded shamanism. It's been part of the core. Um, so, so, as you've said, the, the history of the role of these substances in the evolution of human consciousness, of religion, of culture, uh, the relationship of these uh, very sophisticated uh, substances um, has really not been written yet. And I think part of the cultural transformation that's going to take place, and I honestly believe you will play a, a key role in this, uh, is that as we re-understand our relationship uh, to food, to uh, herbals, uh, to these substances, we see the, the profound depth and beauty of this dance, mm -hmm. you know? And it reimagines our whole relationship with nature in a way that Western culture has gotten very far away from. Mm -hmm. Well, um, the, the changes in people's relationship to nature is one of the really interesting things about this increase in openness that yeah. happens. And the fact is, it is something in nature that has had this effect on you. Mm -hmm. um, even in the case of LSD, this is, I don't know if people are aware, but it's derived from a fungus, the ergo fungus. Um, and these are molecules that nature has come up with on their own. Although there are psychedelics that have been invented since that are very uh, highly novel. Um, you know, the, the role of, of psychedelics or other drugs in religions is very hard to pin down, and it's a very hard history to write. Um, there, um, it stands to reason. I mean, these drugs give people an experience of another world. Um, uh, the fact that this is not the only... Um, the only dimension in which you can be. Uh, and so you could see how that concept, which is common in lots of religions, might have grown out of these experiences. We see lots of cultures today still using these drugs um, in their rituals to make contacts with other, other worlds, other realms, spirits, and the dead, and, and such. You know? But it's, I, I don't know how you write that history exactly. I mean, there are some records and illusions, um, but we're really in terra incognita about a lot of that. I think, though, that the religious context is a really interesting context, and, and it reveals a lot about the, how disruptive these drugs are. I mean, a great many religions obviously begin with someone's direct experience of the divine, you know, so defined. And, um, but over time, that, that experience is limited to just the priestly class. And everyone else has to rely on what the priests say. And you have this institutionalization of what was once an ecstatic experience. And, um, and a lot of religious uh, institutions are about mediating the relationship between the, the, the uh, worshiper and God. And if you allow for direct access to the divine, um, you've all hell breaks loose. Um, and, uh, and religions have always fought that. And I mean, that's what antinomianism was about in America. That's what the, the witch trials were about in America. I mean, people, whenever people come along and say, no, I, I, I'm going direct to the source, um, bad things happen to them. Uh, and so it's 
that's one of the ways in which these drugs are very disruptive. Um, and they, um, they're, they're horizontal rather than hierarchical. And, um, and that may be one of the reasons that they'll be very hard to fold into culture. You know, I found a, there, 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 there's a really interesting divide between the kind of Mandarin psychedelic people and the populist psychedelic people, and as there was in the 60s. And, and we, we've heard about the populist, people like Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey, who, who were so confident that these drugs had so much to offer everybody that they, 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 got, they grew impatient. I mean, Leary grew impatient with science and just thought, no, we've got to give them to everybody. But there was a Mandarin tradition too. Um, that felt that they were so powerful and disruptive that they needed to be closely held. And this is, uh, Huxley was definitely... Huxley was in that. He was in that camp. Um, there's a character very few people know about named Captain Al Hubbard, who is kind of, some people call him the Johnny Appleseed of LSD, and he was an OSS officer who had an um, angelic visitation in 1951 that something that was going to change the course of... of of civilization was about to happen, and two days later he read an article about LSD, which is very new then, and realized this was it. And he secured a, a, like a liter bottle of it from Sandoz. Might be enough to induce a psychedelic journey in the entire human population. And proceeded in a very deliberate way to introduce LSD to a great number of very powerful people in, in all walks of life. Um, and including a lot in the Bay Area. He was very active at, at Stanford Research Institute, where he worked for a while. And, um, uh, but he, he, was, he was horrified by what was happening in the counterculture. So that's one divide. Um, and uh, and, and I, don't, you know, I, don't, I don't know where I stand on that, um, frankly. I mean, I don't know where I stand on a lot of these questions, because I'm really at the beginning of a process. And uh, I don't have a clear... Uh, you know, I, I know more of where I think the food business should go than I do in agriculture than I do where psychedelics, but they're very interesting issues and they need to be thrashed out. Um, it may be that these drugs do need a context, but it doesn't have to be a medical context. Maybe it's a religious context. And in fact, I know someone who's, you know, started a, uh, a new church, in effect, um, and uh, where this is a part of what you do. Um, and, um, but context is important, and I think that was part of the, the 60s problem, was that these were so new that we didn't have manners and mores to govern their use. Um, and that with powerful drugs, that's often true. I mean, it's true with all drugs. It's true with alcohol. You need a context. I mean, part of the problem with binge drinking on campus is that, you know, we drove it underground. And so kids, when they're first discovering alcohol, were not around adults and they weren't around um, uh, bars and they weren't around social environments that would govern the use of this also powerful drug and, and got into all sorts of trouble. So... Context can be many things, and it can be very positive. And, um, uh, and I think that's something that we uh, need to think harder about. Mm -hmm. For good reasons, uh, the researchers have started with psilocybin and not LSD. And uh, as you and others have pointed out, there are a whole set of others. Uh, uh, and having been around this whole experience for over 40 years, um, uh, I've watched people go in and out of, of different substances. The ayahuasca community is a very interesting one right now in terms of the number of people who feel transformed by some encounter with ayahuasca. Have you been looking into that? 
You know, not, um, I am. I'm researching it, and uh, I'm really interested in it. And this is one that, of course, does have a context. This is a this is a, a blend of two drugs um, that comes from the Amazon and has been used in a lot of uh, in Brazil quite a bit, in Peru quite a bit. And there is, and now there there are people leading um, uh, uh, what are called ceremonies here. Um, and it's a very powerful drug. DMT is the active ingredient. Um, it's disruptive, um, and uh, and a lot of people have really shattering experiences, um, but they also find them sometimes very very helpful. Um, and uh, I had a student who wrote a, a terrific article about it, and, and had a great many of these ceremony ceremonial experiences. Um, one of the things that's striking about ayahuasca is how anybody ever figured it out, because the DMT is, is actually a very interesting molecule because it's common in the plant world. I mean, almost all plants make some of it, and some plants make a lot of it, and some very common plants make a lot of it. Uh, our brains make some of it, too, for reasons we don't understand. Um, uh, but we have enzymes in our digestive system um, that destroy it. So if you ingest it, nothing happens. But the Indians figured out a very long time ago that if you cooked it with this other plant that has a MAOR inhibitor, that's the name of the enzyme, um, it will get through the digestive system and get into your brain. And I don't know how that recipe was ever arrived at, but an uh, awful lot of trial and error. Um, or they say the plants or told God, or guidance, or guidance right? Guidance. Yeah, and and people on ayahuasca have a very powerful experience with nature, and um, and there, there is this idea that the that the the plants are talking to you, and that the, that ayahuasca came along to help nature address us about everything we're fucking up, and um, and that's sometimes a painful lesson to hear. So no, I haven't gone uh, very deeply into looking at that, but I plan to. I'm trying to. Be sure I have the name right, but is ibogaine another one of the? Yeah, that's an African herb. Right. Is that the one that's quite short acting? That. No, that's DMT. Oh, that's DMT. DMT in a if you in a synthesized form is like a ten minute uh, okay. experience, and um, I think it has to be smoked because for the reasons I was describing. And uh, I have talked to people who've used it, and you do make it from plants, but there's many steps, uh, and it is a, um, perhaps the most shattering of all these experiences, because everything happens in 10 minutes, but you have no idea, it's only 10 minutes. Um, and and I, I, people who've failed to have a mystical experience on a great many hallucinogens have on DMT. Uh -huh. Do you know the work of Donald Abrams at the Osher Center here in San Francisco? I do, I, I, I interviewed him when I was writing about medical marijuana years yeah. ago, yeah. We, we've done, through the New School, on our work with a, a part of our work called Healing Circles, which is bringing this work with cancer to wider communities of people interested in healing. We did a, a full day uh, with Donald Abrams that we videotaped and so on. And Donald is sort of the world's leading expert on medical marijuana. Yeah. And one of the most interesting things about medical marijuana is that the version of it that gets you high is one thing and has really good qualities for quality of life issues. But if you use it differently, there's a version that doesn't get you high but has actual anti-cancer properties. And so Donald has been working on, on that dimension of this as well. Um, so just And anti-seizure properties, quite a few interesting. This is CBD, this is the other cannabinoid. Absolutely. Right. 
So the so one of the points um, that I think you make in the New Yorker article is that the question of who's going to fund phase yeah. three clinical trials is fascinating because you can't uh, you know you can't copyright this. can't patent this you can't yeah. patent this stuff and the government isn't about to do it so neither big pharma nor the government is likely to do this so here's this quite natural substance that could be of tremendous benefit, yeah. but not only is it prescribed, but we can't. It doesn't fit into we our. Can't do the clinical trials that right. we get it off that list? Yeah. No, I think it's it's a, it's a real catch twenty yeah. two. Um, if if a drug is common enough and available in plant form, mm -hmm. uh, big pharma doesn't want to touch it. They want they want drugs that they can control mm -hmm. through the patent laws, and they also want drugs that you have to use chronically. Mm -hmm. They're not interested. I mean, the, the amazing thing about psilocybin is it's one or two trips, and that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're you're better, and that that's not a good business model. <laughs> Um, and uh, and so how people are going to profit from this? There's, I mean, it's it's disruptive of various capitalist uh, forms as well as uh, cultural forms. Well, you know, one one corporation that's trying to figure this out. I just saw the other day. I don't know if you saw it. That Monsanto has just uh, patented GMO marijuana. Hey. <laughs> Is that true? It's true. <laughs> Monsanto ahead of the curve once more. <laughs> Good well, that might, you know, that might burnish their reputation it in might. many circles, yeah. But I thought it had the makings of a great uh, campaign against that with Just Say No as the slogan. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, um, let's talk a bit about the dangers of these things because... Um, I've met, I'm sure you've met, uh, people whose, whose lives have, have been seriously harmed by recreational use of these things. And it seems to me that, at least as I've thought about it, that there are three categories of this. One is sort of uh, personality types, the borderline personalities, uh, uh, people with, uh, but also people with extremely rigid control mechanisms who are very frightened of what's going to be on the other side. So there are a variety of people with schizophrenogenic personalities, those kinds of things. A second thing is stage of development. Um, when my son was growing up in Bolinas, he's now 40, I, uh, I looked at the eighth grade boys, and at that time, I think almost all the eighth grade boys were smoking pot. And that was not something that I thought was developmentally mm -hmm. great. It wasn't that I was against pot, yeah. but putting any young boy in a culture where that was the case seemed to me a challenging thing. So there's the sort of stage of development at which these things take place. And then, of course, set and setting. Uh, and set and setting is very interesting because that includes both the set, that is what you bring to it, and the setting. Your mindset, take and then the literal setting. And, yeah. and the set is not, it, it, it's sort of, what comes to my mind is fortune favors the prepared mind. Mm -hmm. That if you've done enough work on yourself in some way, 
that this can be extraordinarily beneficial because of the work you've done on yourself. So those are my three categories. How would you describe the way... Well, I think that's a pretty good typology. I mean, I think one of the curious things is most of the culture's experience with these drugs uh, are among people who are unformed. I mean, yeah. People taking these drugs in their teens and early 20s. Right. And it's a very different thing when you're in your 60s. I mean, I, I, I found from talking to these uh, to the patients. And... Um, and to the extent that the drugs work by um, popping you out of the grooves of, of, of habitual thinking, which seems to be a, uh, what's going on um, mentally, um, you don't have as much habitual thinking when you're that uh, young. I mean, I, I should back up and talk a little bit about the brain science that, that's implicated in this, because it's, it's really an interesting part of it. I mean, we haven't really understood how these drugs work on the brain. It's, it's, it's like a lot of drugs, though. I mean, we, you know, we, don't, we use a lot of drugs we don't understand. You don't have to understand them to use them in medicine. Um, but some of the most interesting research, is, which is going on in England, is um, giving people injections of psilocybin and then putting, while they're inside, an MRI machine and some other kinds of scans to see what, what parts of the brain Talk are excited. Talk about setting. Yeah, I know. I, I, unimaginable. Yeah, with that clanging of an MRI machine. These are very brave people. Um, You're listening to a conversation with Michael Pollan and Michael Lerner. And the assumption among, um, this will wind around to your, to your question, um, the assumption among most of the researchers was that there's something, there's an excite, excitation effect going on, that these drugs must be exciting brain centers because there are these vivid imageries and synesthesia and hallucinations and all these kind of things and strong emotions happening. But to their surprise, they found it was the opposite. Mm-mm. And that the drugs were quieting one particular brain region or network. And it was something called uh, the default mode network. This is a, a structure in your brain. It links several different areas of your brain, but it's, it, it links the cerebral cortex to the deeper limbic areas, hippocampus and, and, and places like this. Um, and it is a, as this researcher described it to me, kind of the orchestra conductor or manager of the brain. It's a regu- it, it, it exerts a regulating function. It's also a transit hub. So stuff coming from your senses and stuff coming from your memory, they all get kind of, you know, it's Grand Central Station. They get sorted and put in the, in the right place. Um, and it is where the ego seems to, to the extent you can locate, find a, a, a neural correlate for the ego, it seems to be here. And that makes sense as the manager. Of, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it is an editing function. It's keeping a lot of things out of conscious awareness um, that would be not useful because Huxley got this right. If you take in too much sensory information, you'll be overwhelmed. It's adaptive to have a re- what he called a reducing valve. To, to keep a lot of things out of your awareness. Um, and, uh, and so a little trickle gets through of things we need to survive and function in life. So what, what the psychedelics appear to do, both psilocybin and LSD, because he's done the same work with LSD, is um, shut down the default mode network. And a, and a set of very interesting things happen when it's offline. Um, one is that obviously you have this experience of loss of ego, but another thing that happens is that there's no longer an editor and lots of stuff just bubbles up um, into conscious awareness. And another interesting thing that happens is brain regions that don't normally talk to one another but must go through the transit hub start talking. 
So the emotion centers talk directly to the visual centers without any intermediary, and you have a, you know, you see something that's more influenced by your fears or desires than really exists. Um, so it, it essentially temporarily rewires the brain. The usefulness of this in therapy has to do with the fact that the default mode network, which is very adaptive and a great achievement of human evolution, can get overactive. And when it does, you have depression. Uh, when it does, you have anxiety and obsessive thinking. Um, and that this is an ego that is autocratic and despotic. Um, and so what the drugs seem to do is, is release its hold for a period of time and allow forms of very habitual thinking to stop, at least for a period of time, and teach some new patterns uh, that aren't so habitual. And that's why they think it may be very useful in addiction. And they have had some very interesting results in addiction. So it seems to me that it is in those of us who are a little older where the, the, the dangers or the negative uh, effects of an overactive default mode network are mo most pronounced, much more so than people who are 18 or 20. Um, and so there was a line in the piece that unfortunately got cut um, where I say that it may be that uh, psychedelics are wasted on the young. <laughs> I don't know why the New Yorker had a problem with that. <laughs> well, you know, let me make this personal for a moment. Uh, I took, uh, I think, three psychedelics uh, experiences, one or two in New Haven and one or two out here in, uh, in Bolinas when I got here in 1972. And there was only one that was truly memorable to me. I think it was psilocybin. I took it with a, a wonderful man who was then the physician in Bolinas. And I was walking home to my house along a dirt road. And I had this very powerful experience. It was a beautiful day. I was recently married. I had this very powerful experience that I was a young rabbi on the steps in Russia, filled with joy at life, walking home to my wife, you know? And it was just a really lovely experience. Now, did it have lasting impact? Did it change my life? No. None of those uh, three or four uh, experiences with psychedelics changed my life. I can say that experiences with marijuana uh, uh, at very key points in my life, uh, including in the process of imagining the work out here, had a very powerful effect. So I'm not somebody, and then I'm not somebody who had an addictive relationship to drugs. I mean, I have an addictive relationship to books, you know, but I don't have an addictive relationship. I saw your office. <laughs> but, but I'm not somebody who needs them. Um, and, and yet, when I've been doing the research for this, I thought to myself, much along the lines that you're describing, I wonder if I should try this, you know? At this point, at 71 years of age, facing, hopefully, another decade of good work or more, but nonetheless, living with the possibility of death as a reality from here on. Uh, and I, th I find myself thinking, I wonder if I should try this. Mm. And I think the part of me that doesn't want to try it is that 
you know, Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald had that wonderful line about one of his characters being born two martinis down. And I think I was born two martinis up, you know? <laughs> and, you know, in other words, I just take a tremendous amount of joy in life, and I, I love life. And so tinkering with my brain chemistry yeah. is not necessarily high on my list of things to do because I like the way it works. Yeah. And yet I wonder, I wonder if it would help me with some of the very real anxieties that I'm able to feel um, about dying, you know? So I think that inner dialogue is probably going on for a lot of people uh, as we face this period of time. I mean, if you, if you are dealing with, you know, a life-threatening illness, then to me, it would certainly be something to mm -hmm. consider. Um, but I think that dialogue that you're talking about, that it may be wasted on the young. I don't know if it's wasted on the young. Yeah. Uh, but, but it has something to offer yeah, people at another yeah, stage in life. Yeah. I, and I think it probably does, and it's a different thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, if set and setting is so important, yeah. obviously that's part of your set. Exactly. Is where you are in relationship to death, where you are in relationship to, you know, so many different things. Right. And, and I share your, your ambivalence about it. I, I feel both instincts. I feel like I've constructed a personality that, you know, works okay. Mm -hmm. Don't fuck with it. <laughs> I mean, it could be improved. I'm not saying it can't be improved. But th there is a kind of roll of the dice uh, element here. And, and that, you know, would it be reckless to, to throw so much up for grabs and... and you know, my wife and I have had this conversation since I published this piece, but, but it, it, I, I was very intrigued by what I was hearing from people, and, I, and, I, and I, it seemed to me that there was a profound experience on offer here. And, um, uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely of two minds on that question. You know, the other thing for me that goes on, I mean, in other words, one can regard the view that earned evolution is better than chemical uh, transformation. Um, in other words, that I mean, if you take the great spiritual traditions, they almost all teach that uh, Jung spoke of it, you find it in uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, that it is through our suffering that we have, right? right? So if you take a chemical shortcut to yeah. stop the suffering and you're given instant chemical evolution, what does that do to that other mechanism? And so I know in my own case that I had a heart attack 11 years ago, went through a period of intense anxiety, but knew that anxiety could lead to an understanding if I went through it, that anxiety represented an opportunity for an opening. Mm -hmm. I finally got there. It was very, very powerful. If I had had this as an alternative, I wouldn't perhaps have gone through that work. And so it's a quite fundamental question mm. as to whether the kind of evolution that any of us choose is that we prefer to do the hard work that leads to right. authentic, grounded development, or we want to take the shortcut that may be transformative, but may also not strengthen that path. Mm -hmm. of well, and it may not... Yeah, and it, it also may be transient. I mean, and that experience may not, because unless you've laid the foundation um, and the groundwork, you may not be able to make use of what you've experienced. I mean, there's a, that's a real debate people yeah. have about whether uh, th this is in some sense a shortcut or cheating. And, um, uh, 
You know, but it's important to remember that everything going on in our mind is mediated by chemistry. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so using chemistry to affect chemistry is not so unnatural. Um, uh, on the other hand, it appeals to our work ethic, I think, too, to think that I got here through meditation and I'm a better person for it. So, you know, we are Puritans. Absolutely. It's the yeah. Puritan ethic of this. Yeah. Um, Say a little bit about um, uh, turning. We've spoken a little bit about uh, the the impact of uh, of herbals on on the development of religion, but we haven't talked much about culture. And I believe you have a place uh, in. It could be in the Botany of Desire. I've read so much of your stuff. I can't remember where I saw things, but on the Romantic movement and the revolt against rationalism and the impact of opium and hashish on that. Yeah, well, I, you know, in, in this book, I was trying to find examples of, of, of cultural shifts that may have been mediated by drugs, at least to some extent. And, uh, and one is romanticism and the use of opium by the romantics, Coleridge in particular. Um, and Coleridge is very explicit about it. And, um, you know, he has his schema of the imagination. There's primary imagination, secondary imagination, which is um, how we change what initial imagination gives us and he he's very clear on the fact that his own ability to imagine these kind of wild worlds that he wrote about in his poetry um, was occasioned by this that, that that's how he got access to it and there's a wonderful scholar of uh, the drug experience whose book I, I strongly recommend to everybody. His name is David Lenson. He's a professor of uh, comp lit at UMass who wrote a book called On Drugs. And he's written beautifully on the romantics and, their, and the role of drugs in, uh, in, in their work. Um, and, you know, I mean, I say in the book, there is a natural history of the imagination that remains to be written. Um, and I think in that natural history of the imagination, you would... I mean, I can imagine this book. I don't know how to get the research done, but um, that you would find at uh, certain cultural moments, uh, at the birth of certain religions, the birth of certain technologies, you will find that there was a very important role for uh, some chemical substance. I mean, one of the things that I've been really struck by is, is the role of psychedelics in Silicon Valley. Um, uh, currently, recently, and at the, at the inception, um, it's a very important part of that culture, and it doesn't get talked about too much. But after the article came out, I, I met with somebody who, you know, um, who had been at Stanford Research Institute in 71, I guess, as a young man, and Captain Al was still around. And um, uh, uh, some of the early um, breakthroughs in semiconductor technology um, apparently owed to LSD trips. Um, the challenge of imagining a 3D structure like a, I mean, remember, at the beginning, this, this goes without saying, we didn't have computers to design these things. Um, and um, so they were designed with these sheets of cellophane, like an overhead projector, and you would do a different circuit on each one, and you'd have to stack them up, 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 and keeping the structure in your head was very, very difficult. One of the things that psychedelics are very good for is, is three-dimensional imagination. And... Uh, and indeed, the structure of DNA, according to uh, Francis Crick, you know, owed to an LSD trip, and uh, PCR, polymerase chain reaction, the technology we use to duplicate DNA, owed to an LSD trip, according to its inventor. So there's a, there's a, there's a history in science, 
And indeed, there were experiments in the early 70s. I mean, one of the, one of the things that's really struck me about this is what an archaeology of research you need to do, because a lot of research was done then, and then it just stopped. Um, but there was research at Stanford looking at creativity. Uh, uh, James Fadiman was involved with this. And, um, and they would give LSD, I think it was LSD, to scientists struggling with a thorny problem and artists struggling with a thorny problem. I think the science worked out better than the art on the whole, but, um, but many people were able to break, break knots of, of, uh, of um, you know, creativity using it. And um, uh, so that's all very interesting, and that, and that, and that, but that's part of the same idea, of breaking you out of habitual ways of approaching a problem or perception. Did you read the book called How the, Hipp How the Hippies Saved Physics? No. Have you seen that? It's a wonderful book. It's very relevant to you. It's a wonderful book about um, the, the drug culture in the Bay Area uh, during a period in the evolution of physics where a lot of phys uh, phys physicists were sort of drilling down into just the math and were leaving the exploratory mm -hmm. process. And this group of young physicists got together and essentially recreated the creative side of physics. It's a I do need to read that. Yeah. And there is a book on uh, the 60s culture in Silicon Valley that John Markoff, the Times reporter, yes. wrote, mm -hmm. which is interesting. And, you know, Steve Jobs spoke about this to Walter Isaacson about the role of LSD in his, mm -hmm. his creativity. And, um, and he had this wonderful, the be, one of the best insults I've ever read, which is, uh, he said of um, Bill Gates that Windows would have been so much better had he tripped just once. <laughs> Epstein to begin gathering uh, questions, but uh, I have an, a lot of other questions to ask, so we'll do, continue that. One of the things that comes out in your, your New Yorker piece and in uh, the very nice film clip that accompanies it on the website is the very real fact that psychopharmacology has nothing like this to offer people in distress. I mean, Xanax or yeah. antidepressants and things which often have very powerful side effects. You know, this is also true of marijuana. You know, here, here are these substances, you know, that uh, done in the right way have few, if any, lasting negative yeah. effects for the right... They're less toxic They're drugs, less toxic. actually. I mean... Uh... And, and, and here are all kinds of people with acute existential distress, yeah. right? And, and psychiatrists don't have anything like this. So yeah. there are psychiatrists and psychologists who are trying to completely reimagine their profession. Well, and but they're up against... And they're uh, up against these tremendous uh, legal restrictions and everything else. But not just legal restrictions. I mean, it has to do with the way we've organized our, our um, health care since yeah. the, the, the 60s. I mean... You know, you, behavioral health, as it's called, you get money to um, not to treat um, psychological problems in any real depth. Right. I mean, the money flows to people who prescribe drugs, right? right? And one of the interesting side effects of this psychology, uh, using psychedelics in therapy, is it's a return to depth psychology, basically, away from fixing symptoms with a, a small handful of drugs. Um, this is really about dealing with causes. And I don't know that our healthcare system's ready to go there. Um, and, uh, but, you know, LSD opened up 
uh, brain, you know, the, the brain chemistry in the 50s. I mean, it was it, it led to the discovery of serotonin as an important, uh, which it closely resembles uh, as an important um, neurotransmitter, and then leads to the the development of the antidepressants that we have. And those are, you know, prescribed not to help necessarily and to give people relief, and in many cases they do, not to explore the causes of problems. Um, and, and whereas psychedelics tend to do that. And, and the, the therapists who are interested in it are really interested in going beyond what they, they regard as a Band-Aid approach to psychotherapy. Um, but that's a big cultural shift um, because we, we've got these drugs that sort of work sometimes and it's cheap and um, no one will pay for anything more. Um, Elaborate. On the other hand, if you can get big effects with a single session, um, maybe maybe they will cover this someday. Yeah, a friend of mine, uh, when I was talking to him about this, said, uh, "Does Michael have any idea how many veterans are using well, these yeah. things to recover from PTSD?" Well, veterans are, are prescribed lots of Xanax, lots of antidepressants. They're really a lot of them are just kept drugged up. And um, there is very interesting work going on with psychedelics and specifically with MDMA, uh, which some people regard as a psychedelic, some people don't, ecstasy. Um, and there are a couple small trials. In fact, there's one starting in Marin County of um, veterans with PTSD and MDMA. And there are some early indications that uh, in another study done in South Carolina, this has been very successful. And what the MDMA seems to do is it, it and it was used widely in therapy in the Bay Area, you know, in the, up till the time it was banned in, in the mid 80s, is it allows uh, therapists and their patients to establish a bond of trust very quickly, like instantly. Uh, that might take years. Um, and then it also apparently allows someone with traumatic memories to take those memories out and examine them without getting very emotional and then reconsolidate them in a slightly less charged way. Mm -hmm. That's the theory anyway. And, and the, there seems to be some, a new opening um, in the... Um, in the Pentagon to, to work with this, because they're so desperate. They're spending about $500 million a year, I think, to treat PTSD right now. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people suffering. And so, as has happened before, the Pentagon may lead the way with some of this work. The Pentagon leads the way on a lot of things. Well, they, yeah. Change stuff, they're way out in front. So here's a question from Steve Heilig of San Francisco Medical Society, one of our uh, close colleagues. One long-time critique of psychedelic lessons is that they are often not durable. Any wisdom gained may not last. With, a me with medical research, is this a concern? Um, and uh, before you respond, I just, I think this relates to uh, the concepts of state changes versus trait changes. Yes, right? that's right. And, yeah. and in fact, there's a suggestion that you do get trait changes, right? Yeah. Well, um, some of this research has looked at that question, and there's, there, there, there have done six-month and, I think, year-long follow-ups to see what happens. And they are finding um, that some of the changes are persisting, especially on this, you know, trait of openness, um, that that seems to hold on. And they do a lot of research, not just going back to these... Uh, volunteers, but interviewing people around them, their family and their friends, to see if they've changed in lasting ways. 
Um, but it's definitely something, I, I, a lot of that has to do with what we were talking about earlier, whether these experiences are consolidated with the help of therapists or not. Um, and that seems to make a, a tremendous difference. Um, but that's definitely a concern that they're, that they're trying to address in their studies. I think, I think it's good that they try to consolidate it with therapists, but I also think just from, you know, natural experiments that large numbers of people that I talk to about this tell me that their lives were changed mm -hmm. without any therapist doing consolidation. Mm -hmm. So again, I think it's, uh, and also it's interesting to think about state versus trade. I think yeah. those were William James's terms. Yeah. And state versus stage. And so that's the view that it's not just a trade change, but an evolutionary mm -hmm. movement that in effect you can move up in stage of consciousness as opposed to just trait change. Right, and Houston Smith wrote about this a lot. You know, he's the um, historian of religion, and he was involved in some early psychedelic experiences, which, you know, were, he said, the most profound religious experiences he'd ever had, but he says at some point, but a, a spiritual experience does not a spiritual life make. That's right. That you can have a spiritual experience and it is not processed right. and it leaves you unchanged. Right. Uh, or you can have one that, that isn't. And, and what accounts for that, you know, I don't know. I mean, it depends. I think it depends the world you go back into and, um, uh, and how you tell the story to yourself of what happened. Um, and you can treat it as, uh, you know, just a kind of interesting experience or a novelty or you can treat it as something, you know, so, I, I mean, I think we consolidate experiences ourselves all the time. And right. You can do it well without guidance, and, uh, but some people need the guidance. And the Sufis say that you can go up to the top of the mountain, but if you don't turn your back on the mountain and come back down into the world, mm -hmm. it's an incomplete experience. If you don't bring it into service mm -hmm. in some fundamental way. Here's another question from Steve. Your research for the in your research for the article, uh, uh, did you learn of ayahuasca... Um, plant wisdom, uh, which is now being used by Brazilian prisoners as part of their rehabilitation. There's, there, there's a whole church in Brazil, as you yeah. know. Extraordinary work. Yeah, yeah. they're using ayahuasca uh, in Brazil on prisoners, um, rehabilitation. It's, and um, there was an article about this in the Times, I think, a couple weeks ago. That's right. Yeah, and uh, I think it's too soon to say what kind of results, if any, they're getting. Um, but it's, there is an a, a, a ayahuasca church in Brazil that's quite powerful and quite yeah. large, and uh, in the cities, too. I mean, it, it began as a rural phenomenon. And they're shamans who are um, very practiced in guiding people through this. Um, but there's also a lot of ayahuasca tourism now, and, and some of that is, is completely fraudulent. Right. Um, and there have been, people have had bad experiences very with bad. phony shamans yeah. and sexual abuse. Sexual and, abuse, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's something to be very careful. Yeah. Do researchers and journalists studying these substances need to experience them firsthand to fully understand them? <laughs> How can this be done openly without losing, quote, objectivity and credibility? Well, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I knew this question was going to come up. Um, <laughs> you know, I personally did not have any experiences in the, in the, in the writing or, or uh, research for that, for that piece. Um, and I didn't want to. I, it wasn't appropriate. And The New Yorker wouldn't have published it if I did. And um, uh, it wasn't that kind of piece. Um, I am actually very inexperienced uh, with these drugs. And I came of age at a time when the, the full scare campaign against LSD was in its flower. When I was, I remember in 10th grade, 
hearing about, you know, it would destroy your chromosomes. And there was the story of Art Linkletter's daughter, you know, who supposedly jumped out of a window on an LSD trip. And um, so I was too afraid to go near them. And, um, uh, and, I, and I haven't since. Um, so my own experience is very limited. I don't think it is a problem as a journalist. I think I could write a perfectly good book without having this experience, but people seem to expect it from me because of other things I've written. <laughs> stay so, tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. The jury's still out. This, this is a nice, a nice comment. Um, the role of psychedelics in vision quests. Uh, ayahuasca is not a shortcut or an easy way to enlightenment. It is a path well, that's very a good point. difficult work, painful work. For those with the courage to follow it, it is a warrior's path. Um, uh, and it's essential to accompany it with regular spiritual practice and skilled guidance. Well, I think that's a good point. The people I know who've, who've um, worked with ayahuasca, it is not easy. It's a very difficult night and series of nights. Usually there's like three different experiences, one after another. And as I said, it can be really shattering. Um, so, yeah, I mean... A shortcut may, you know, give you an intensity what what uh, what it makes up for in time. We haven't talked much about. Here's a question about the use of psychedelics uh, to heal addiction, especially alcoholism. Yeah, we should talk about that. Um, one of the interesting, if you go back and look at the research on LSD and other drugs, um, uh, one of the th things that shocked me is that there were a thousand peer-reviewed papers before 1965 on LSD. I mean, it was a heavily researched area. It was considered a new miracle drug. And one of the things it was being used for was to treat alcohol addiction. Uh, in fact, the founder of AA, Bill W., got sober after a psychedelic trip. And he strongly believed, it wasn't on LSD, it was, I don't remember what it was on, um, but it was a, a plant, it was a belladonna or something like that, some pretty obscure psychedelic. And, um, and he believed that there was a place for LSD in treating alcohol addiction, and he actually went to the board of, of AA and said, we should, we should have a place for LSD in this, and they thought this was just going to mix the messages or something, uh, that this was a bad idea, and they didn't go along with it. But it was being used. And for, in fact, Captain Al Hubbard set up some clinics for alcoholics in, uh, in Canada. And um, the theory is, and this is still present in the ideology of AA, is that there, that there's, there needs to be a spiritual component to recovery and that um, these drugs could give you that. Um, the idea of the higher power and the succumbing to the higher power is about putting aside your ego. And um, so there's a kind of logic to it. And in fact, there, was some very, um, there were successful studies. There was a meta-analysis done a couple years ago about all the research on alcoholism and uh, psychedelics. And the, the recovery rates were comparable to anything else we have. Um, so... You know, a lot of alcoholics have to hit bottom and go through the DTs, and the idea was that this would kind of simulate that process without actually having to, to um, go there. Um, so anyway, there is a trial now starting uh, at NYU, at Bellevue, um, with uh, psilocybin and alcoholism. The other model for addiction that has been already pursued in modern times is, and, and you do need to make a distinction between these early studies and what we do now, because there are higher standards in terms of blinding studies and controlling um, 
than were, were used there. And some of those early studies hold up and some of them don't. Um, but uh, they've, at Hopkins, they've had very good luck in a small pilot study, it's important to add, treating um, smoking addiction. That is one of the hardest addictions, if not the hardest addiction to break. The, 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 the most successful current treatment for smoking addiction, which is um, nicotine replacement, um, has like a 7% success rate. Um, it's really bad. Um, so they were using a psilocybin combined with cognitive behavioral therapy to help people deal with the cravings. Um, and they got very high success rates. And six months out of abstention, test chemically to make sure that people aren't lying. And, um, uh, and so I, I didn't understand what that was about. And I, I talked to a couple of people who went through it. And what it seemed to do was allow them to reframe the habit. Um, a lot of what addiction is, is the, um, uh, the pairing away of everything in your life except the thing you're addicted to, the, the drink or the drug or the, or the cigarette. And that matters more than anything in your life at a certain point. And the drugs allow you to reconnect to other things. Um, and so somebody said to me, um, I felt like the camera on my life had been pulled back so much further than it had ever been that I saw myself and what I was doing and it was really stupid. And how much more important my breath was than this cigarette. And another was like, yeah, it just seemed irrelevant after that. I'd had this big experience in smoke and it wasn't a problem. Um, so we'll see how that, that's being duplicated in a larger trial now. We'll see how it works. Again, you have people selected, you know, or selecting themselves to participate. So we always have to be cautious about um, making big um, findings based on small pilot studies. They often don't hold up. Here's a beautiful question. Um, Michael Pollan refers to molecules which have no agenda rather than plant spirits, which might actually have an agenda. agenda. <laughs> and, you know, Somebody's listening way too carefully. <laughs> <laughs> but that is, that is actually a very profound question uh, because there is no scientific basis on which one could say which of those hypotheses is correct. Well, other species do have agendas, right? I mean, I don't know that molecules do, but, right. but species have agendas, which is to reproduce and, um, uh, you know, pass their genes right. forward. And, um, and they do a whole lot of different things without any kind of consciousness or planning. Um, so that, for example, cannabis, which has been a very successful species um, that began somewhere in Asia and, and you know, unprepossessing plant. And when it was discovered by the Chinese or the Indians um, that it had this effect, um, it multiplied that effect in order to um, extend its range, get planted more often in the same way that a, you know, apple is red to attract pollinators uh, or... Um, or a, or a strawberry is sweet. Um, you, the, these plants, strictly by trial and error, again, this is not you know, intentional. You don't need intentionality to make evolution work. Um, but by trial and error, they discover that having more of this chemical uh, and less of that poison, say, um, you, have a, you, you increase your chances of, of getting, having your seed planted somewhere and, or carried around the world. So, um, plants are working on us all the time, and fungi maybe too. I mean, one of the things that's really striking about where you find mushrooms, it tends to be along the side of paths. 
<laughs> and, and no, really, it is. A, and, and you go further off the path and you often don't find them. And what that means is people who find them carry them down paths and they drop their spores along the way. And, and uh, so when, when I was asking, how do you find um, psilocybes? These are the psilocybin-producing mushrooms. Paul Stamets, who's, a, who's an expert on this, said, well, their habitat is human paths. <laughs> so. so you followed Paul Stamets or... I do, yeah, I do. I, I think I think he's uh, an extraordinary person. He's an extraordinary person. He's um, brilliant in many ways, and he, you know, he wrote. He literally wrote the field guide on on psilocybin mushrooms. And, and a very close friend of Andrew Weil, and you also speak highly right. of, of Weil's work. And, yeah, and, uh, yeah, I learned a lot from him. He's very sane on drugs. Actually, when our son was a teenager, uh, he's got a book called From Chocolate to Morphine. That's mm -hmm. one of the sanest books to give a teenager on drugs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Here's a good one. Any thoughts on the use of psychedelics for pro prolonged intractable or complicated grief? And then this is the part I also like. What essentially differentiates recreational from sacramental, yeah. from therapeutic use of psychedelics? Or are those even valid distinctions? And so that gets, in, because if you think about the word recreation, it's recreate. Recreate, yeah. And so, so there, and, and in a lot of the reading here, both you and others who work on this, in original societies, the therapeutic, the societal, the medicinal, these were all part of a, a whole. Well, it has to do with sanctioning, obviously. Right. And, and those words, you know, in some ways they're meaningful distinctions, but we attach values to that, and we assume recreational is therefore is non-serious. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. In the, in the real meaning of the word recreation, there's nothing more serious. Right. And, um, and doing things in a spirit of play doesn't necessarily right. mean they're meaningless in, right. in any way. We tend to, and, I, and I'm guilty of this in the article, tend to value uh, the research that's done by, you know, people in white coats and, and that context. Science, I mean, I, I'm a science writer, but I'm, I'm acutely aware of the overinvestment of authority we have in scientists uh, as a society. They are the last word on all qu questions. We don't refer to poets anymore for wisdom. We refer to scientists. And I think that's a big mistake. I mean, scientists are very good at certain things and not others, as they will be the first to tell you. Mm -hmm. um, but we invest them in so much so that the sci and, th and this is what I would hope to do in a book, is go beyond the scientific path to look at some of these other paths that are out there and um, maybe just as legitimate, um, even though they don't have the same cultural sanction. So sacramental, recreational, and therapeutic is, is a good anatomy. I think that there are probably areas where things blur in between. Um, those are three different cultural contexts in which we do things. And to make a hierarchy of those, I think, would be a mistake. Have you looked at, uh, speaking of the romantics, uh, we recently did a New School conversation, a uh, very interesting one, on uh, Goethe's theory of knowledge, Rudolf Steiner, and, uh, which was very much in the Romantic tradition. But the main point is that Goethe, as you know, in his scientific work, uh, did extraordinary work on plants. Sure. And, um, and it seems to me that a couple of thoughts come together here. The Romantic tradition was a reaction to rationalism and the coming of the Industrial Age, mm -hmm. right? And it was, you know, 
uh, what is it, uh, Blake's beautiful line about saying no to Newton's single vision, mm -hmm. right? And uh, so here's this reaction to the industrial age and its sort of cold, rational vision, uh, which concentrates on the image. You know? right. And so what these plants do is to give us depth experiences of the imaginal, mm -hmm. which, as you say, is depth psychology, and specifically it's archetypal psychology, mm -hmm. so the work of James Hillman, Carl Jung, right. and so on. And so I think your point that going beyond the science, because there's so much they can't tell us about the nature of consciousness and the nature of the experience... And that's key. And that, and that's key. That consciousness is, has, has not proven amenable right. so far to the reductive scientific method. Right. And that leaves space for others to operate. I mean, basically, all we have to go by on consciousness is phenomenology, the described experience. Right. And that's why um, uh, people who aren't traditional scientists, that is an area where they still have a lot to teach us. And the poets, and, you know, people like Proust are probably way ahead of, of most neuroscience. If you read the debate on consciousness, it's really amazing how little they know and, and, and how many dumb things get said about it. And um, uh, so I, I think that's true. I mean, part of the, that, that idea of romantic science is that it's anti-reductive, mm -hmm. and the idea that you can reduce any complicated thing to parts, and that the parts explain the whole. Goethe and Steiner and others were very suspicious of that idea, and they said there's something about an organism that is much more than the sum of its cellular or molecular parts. And, um, and that notion of science, you know, we've lost, we don't see organism, nobody counts you know, numbers of animals or describes them anymore in science. We, we're, we're, we're so interested in reducing it to the, to the molecule or the cell or the gene um, that, that certain things are now invisible to science, and the organism is one of them. And um, there is a movement, though, you know, there's, there's a group in New York called the Nature Institute, mm -hmm. really interesting group that's kind of bringing back Gertian uh, um, science, uh, or trying to. It's very fringe. Um, it's just your kind of thing. You should check it out. Uh, <laughs> well, in that spirit, uh, imagine for a moment that I'm going back to the question about animal, about spirits, plant spirits. Imagine that nature really is trying to talk with us. Imagine that uh, in the face of the crisis created by industrial civilization and the enormous destructiveness around us, that these plant spirits are coming to us uh, to create an effort to really be in dialogue mm -hmm. uh, with, uh, with, uh, with life itself in a way um, that I actually think that although you frame yourself as a science writer, that your books are overflowing with um, appreciation in all your food writing and in this writing of the depth of communication that's going on, whether purposeful or not. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you frame it in terms of molecules and so forth. But you have a deep affinity to the notion that we are co-evolving. No question. So and the only thing that I hear that you haven't embraced is the possibility that there's a sense of purpose 
on the side of nature as well as on the human side. And so it's an act of the imagination right. to say that, that perhaps these experiences of, of so many geniuses and ordinary people, whether using pharmaceuticals or just on meditation, that there actually really is a dialogue. And mm -hmm. in fact, as you say, that the future of humanity depends on how we respond to the question, what's for dinner? And perhaps the future of the humanity also depends on opening ourselves up to the possibility that the earth isn't sold mm -hmm. and that there is a real possibility for dialogue. And I'm just curious how you hold that. Well, I, I haven't taken enough psychedelics to say. <laughs> Honestly. I mean, I, you know, I've talked to people who have had a lot of experience with ayahuasca in, in particular, and they are as eloquent as you just were on this idea. Mm -hmm. And they feel that they've directly had that communication. Mm -hmm. um, I do believe that plants are communicating with one another and in a certain way with us. I don't think it's in a human language, and, um, and I don't know that the vocabulary you're using is, is accurate or not. Um, but it's an interesting idea, and I, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not close to it. I'm not close to it. I haven't, I haven't seen it or felt it. Um, if they do speak to us, it's definitely time for them to raise the volume. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's time for us to open our ears. Michael Pollan, thank you for being with us. Oh, Michael, thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a conversation with Michael Pollan and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook 